Well, good morning. It's uh, really special to see everyone once again. Well, at least half of your faces. Uh, it is disconcerting preaching to uh, just a handful of people uh, and an empty, empty room. So it is, it is a great joy to, to see everyone. And uh, again, as I always say, an incredible privilege to be able to proclaim the good news, uh, the greatest message in the whole world, the only message that can change lives, that can set people free, that can bring us into relationship with the true and living God. Uh, it is the most amazing privilege, and I pray that uh, I never uh, become familiar with it and uh, no longer appreciate it. Well, if it's your first time here, yeah, we're going through the, the book of Second Corinthians, Paul's uh, second letter in, in, our, in our Bibles to the Corinthians, and we're in <clears throat> chapter 10, so please turn there, Second Corinthians chapter 10. I'm going to read through the chapter, and then, and then we'll go through it, and we'll see how far we get. So from verse 1, I, Paul, myself entreat you. By the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I am away, I beg of you that when I am present I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ's, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ's, so also are we. For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters. For they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. Let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. But we will not boast beyond limits, but will boast only with regard to the area of influence God assigned to us, to reach even to you. For we are not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you. For we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. We do not boast beyond limit in the labors of others. But our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged. So that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you. Without boasting of work already done in another's area of influence. Let the one who boasts boast in the Lord, for it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. This is a reading of God's word. 
Thanks be to God. Just some background again so you know where we're at. Uh, Paul has been and is defending his ministry against these false apostles who have crept into the church that he planted in, Corinth. And they've tried to usurp Paul's authority and turn the congregation against him, and they have been quite successful, unfortunately. And so Paul has, uh, for several chapters, been going through the, the, really the agony, as well as the ecstasy of being in ministry. The trials, the difficulties, the rejection, the persecution, the sufferings, uh, the, the disappointment of not seeing many people converted, but also the joy of seeing people converted and knowing that the Lord is with him. Those are the the, the ecstasy, that's the ecstasy, that's the joy, that's the, the privilege of being in ministry. And then the last few chapters, chapters 7, 8, and 9, there seem to be a change. Uh, the waters have been a lot calmer. Chapter 7, remember, he's rejoicing at their repentance. Uh, he wrote what, what, we, what he calls a severe letter, which we don't have. Uh, but he wrote a severe letter to them and it produced repentance in them. They responded well. And he's rejoicing in chapter 7 at their repentance. And then he shifts to the issue of raising money for the church in Jerusalem that is, that is battling because of a famine. And so it's been quite, the tone has been quite gentle and, and kind. And suddenly the tone shifts. I don't know if you picked that up. I hope you did. Uh, things really begin to heat up. And uh, Paul... Uh, even the way that he begins, he begins in the singular, I, Paul, myself entreat you. So he's really, it's me now, I'm talking to you, uh, Corinthian church, uh, because even though there has been wonderful repentance in many in the church, the false teachers are still there and still have an influence, and now he's really going after them, and maybe there's still a, a community within the church that are following these false apostles. And so uh, he... he he becomes a lot more um, harsh, we could put it that way, a lot more straight. Uh, he uses a lot of sarcasm, which is important if you're going to understand Paul's letters. Uh, he is often using sarcasm, but we, we will look at that. Um, and from what I can see that, you know, I spend a lot of time trying to figure out the best way to break this section up. Uh, from what I can see that Paul deals with five slanderous comments or accusations that are doing the rounds in the Corinthian church that obviously have been initiated, started by the false apostles. They've been saying things about Paul. And uh, these rumors and accusations have spread through the church. And these are slanderous accusations. And so I want to begin right up front by saying that slander is a very serious sin, isn't it? Uh, the scripture has a lot to say about the way we talk about one another. And slander is very dangerous uh, because once it's said, you can't take it back. Isn't that right? Um, <clears throat> I, I heard an analogy once that I thought was really helpful. It's like ripping open a, uh, one of those, those pillows that are, are full of feathers you know, in, a, in a field, a windy field. You rip that open and the wind just takes the feathers and they blow all over the place. Once you've slandered someone, you can't stop it going. That person says it to another person, to another person, to another person. And even if you repent of it, even if you say sorry, you aren't going to be able to go and collect all of those feathers. Uh, 
Uh, and so slander is very, very serious. And when it comes to those in, uh, in leadership, elders, pastors, the scripture gives some warnings. 1 Timothy 5.19, it says, Do not entertain an accusation against an elder or a pastor unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. Another translation puts it this way, Don't listen to a complaint against a leader that isn't backed up by two or three responsible witnesses. Uh, So I'm not saying that because I believe there is a problem with slander in the church. I don't know. Maybe it just hasn't got to me yet. Uh, Maybe this is just a word of knowledge out there. It's for you, okay? Uh, uh, But uh, obviously it's a warning to us to be careful uh, how we speak about one another and specifically how we speak about our leaders. So let's, let's jump into the text, verse 1. I, Paul, myself entreat you. And so as I said, there's a shift from we, from the plural, to I. Paul is really going to be using his apostolic authority now. He's saying, I'm speaking now. Uh, in fact, the word I occurs 239 times in Second Corinthians. 239 times and 147 times in the, these last three chapters. So you can see the shift in the tone. It's a lot more serious. Uh, Paul is defending his apostolic ministry with vehemence and vigor, as one commentator says. So he says, I, I, treat, I entreat you, I beg you, by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I am away. And so this is the first accusation. So some of your Bibles might have that sentence in quotation marks. He's quoting what they say about him. They say, Paul, you know, Paul is, is very, very bold towards us when he's away. But you know, when he comes to us, he's, he's humble. Now, they don't mean humble in a positive sense. They mean sort of sycophantic or obsequious. He's timid. Some of your translations might have that. The idea that he's, he's soft. You know, when he's away, he's bold. And we'll see later on, they talk about his letters. But you know, when he comes and visits us, he's, he's soft. You know, his bark is worse than his bite. He's a pussycat when he's around us. And so they were mocking that. And so how does Paul defend himself? Well, we see that right at the beginning. He says, I entreat you, I'm begging you, I'm pleading with you. It's a very strong word. By the meekness and gentleness of Christ. So Paul, again, as we've noted all the way through, that he comes back to Jesus Christ. Whatever he's talking about. So he says, they're saying he's humble. So he says, I'm going to appeal to you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. If you have a problem with my gentleness and humility, then you need to realize that Jesus is gentle and meek. And isn't that what the Lord Jesus says about himself in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28? Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Uh, I haven't read, there's a, a book that's been published recently, I haven't read it, but I've I heard someone else speak about it, and uh, they just, the author noted that this is the one place where Jesus 
actually says, actually explains his heart. Uh, and I thought that was really insightful. You know, there, there aren't other places where Jesus says, my heart is like this. There is this one place when Jesus says, this is what my heart is like. It is gentle and lowly. Isn't that, that's beautiful. I, I think that's amazing. When Jesus says, you want to know what my heart is like? You know, we talk like that. What is at the core of our being? What are we like at the very center? Jesus says, you want to know what I'm like at the very center? Gentle and lowly. You see, the false apostles were mocking Paul's leadership style. This guy is all gentle and lowly when he's around us. We see that they they have a very ungodly view of leadership and what it means to be a leader. They look down on gentleness and humility. They were domineering and abusive. They got things done. They told people what to do. You do this or you're out. Uh, It sounds so familiar to all these teachers, so-called pastors that are being exposed across the world for their abusive behavior. And uh, we need to be careful of that, that we, 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 we have this mentality of church leadership as a, being a CEO, uh, being, a, being a manager of some big company who just is dishing out orders and just abusing people and authoritarian in an ungodly way. And so Paul says, no, I'm, I come to you like Jesus with gentleness and humility. You, you and you and I need to ensure that we have an understanding of leadership that is biblical, that is like Christ, gentle, meek. Now, that doesn't mean there are not times for boldness and uh, for the use of the sword in that sense, uh, as we'll see with Paul. But that shouldn't be the default. That should be a last step when it is, is finally necessary What we should be looking for in godly leaders is gentleness and humility. Lowliness. Not trying to build their own kingdom. Not feeling threatened all the time and trying to be the the person at the center of attention. You see Paul's desired outcome. What he really wants in verse 2. He says, I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. You see, Paul says, I don't want to have to come and show boldness. That's not what I want. That is the last step. I I want you to respond to what I'm saying. I want you to see how I'm behaving like Christ. The reason I didn't come and, and slam everyone and, and, uh, and shout at everyone is because I imitate Christ with gentleness and lowliness. I don't want to have to come there and bring that sort of bold attitude. But having said that, he, he will do it if, if necessary. The next accusation is one that we've just read right at the end of verse 2. Some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. So there were those who were saying, look, Paul walks according to the flesh. That's, he's, a, he's a fleshly person. And you'll know if you're familiar with Paul's writings that the flesh is a technical term in Paul's writings. Carnal, the older translations have. 
Uh, you, you, you've maybe heard that term, you know, that person's very carnal, they behave in a fleshly way, in a worldly way. Now, when they accuse Paul of walking in the flesh, it's not that they're saying he's, he's, uh, that they're really concerned about holiness so much. Uh, they have a, a, a different view. They're saying that he's not spiritual like us. He doesn't have dreams and visions like us. He doesn't have authority like us. He's not domineering. He's not a, you know, in control like us. Uh, remember, we've seen already they accused him of, of he can't be an apostle because look how much he suffers. Uh, look at the trials he goes through. Everything goes wrong in this guy's life. He can't be a man of God. He must be fleshly. He must be a sinner. He must be a bad guy. Nothing goes wrong in our lives. We have it together. Uh, and we'll see the accusations and, and how they try and belittle him as we go through it. But that's the next accusation, that Paul is fleshly. He's not spiritual like, like they are. Or they claim to be. How does Paul defend himself? Look at verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. So Paul says, yes, look, we walk in the flesh. What he means by that is we live in this world. Paul is saying, as a human being, I'm also subject to all the trials and temptations of being a human being. We, yes, we do walk in the flesh. Okay? I live in this world. He doesn't live on a mountain in a, in a monastery somewhere. Uh, he lives in reality. He's interacting with people. He lives within the Roman Empire. He's going from city to city. He gets arrested. He gets sick. All of these things are part of life. The trials and tribulations of life. But then he says, but we do not wage war according to the flesh. We don't fight according to the flesh. We don't use worldly wisdom to fight, and we don't use violence to fight. In the next chapter, we are told that these false apostles uh, dominate and subjugate the, the Corinthians and even use violence on them. Paul says to the Corinthians, you, you take it when they hit you in the face. Abusive leadership. Paul says, we don't, we don't fight like that. That's not how we fight. Uh, we don't use worldly wisdom to, to get what we want. As we've gone through 2 Corinthians over and over again, we've seen that. Paul says, we don't manipulate God's word. We don't twist it to say, say something it's not saying. We don't dilute it so we can get more people. We don't try and manipulate people. Paul says we are faithful. We proclaim God's word purely and clearly. And so this is the outcome that he desires. Uh, verse 4. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. And then verse 5. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. So Paul says this is, this is how we fight. We don't use worldly wisdom, we don't use manipulation, we don't use scare tactics, we don't use all of these things, uh, nor do we use violence to get people to do what we want them to do. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power. They're from God. And they're able to destroy strongholds. And this, these few verses are intensely militaristic. Uh, 
Paul uses very strong language here. You can, I'm sure you picked that up. He talks about weapons and warfare, uh, destroying of strongholds, literally fortresses, destroying forts. He talks about uh, being ready in verse 6, being ready to punish every disobedience. Uh, that's a military term. You know, you're ready to fight. It's sort of when it's code red uh, and you're ready for action. That's the idea in the, in the Greek of this, this term. And so very strong language. Paul is very clear that he is involved in a war. It is a battle. Uh, we are in a, in a battle. We are in a war, but it is not a physical war. Elsewhere, Paul says, we do not fight against flesh and blood. Very important for us to remember that. Uh, we're not out to, to kill our enemies or kill people from other religions. Uh, that is not the way it, it works. Or to kill the government. Uh, or whatever enemy you, you feel that you have. That's not our fight. Christians get, or get distracted by who the enemy is. And what the fight is all about. Paul is saying here... We don't get distracted. It is a war. It is definitely a war. It is a fight. But we do not use physical or carnal weapons. But our weapons are powerful. It's able to overthrow these strongholds. What are these strongholds? What are these fortresses? They're arguments and high thoughts or lofty opinions that raise themselves against the knowledge of God. It's ideologies Worldviews, heresies. In this context, it's wrong thinking about Christ. It's, it's, a, it's a distorted gospel. These false apostles came in and were bringing a false gospel. They were representing Christ as, as a really health, wealth, and prosperity. You know, if you're really a Christian, you'll have power and authority. You won't take no for an answer. People will submit to you. You'll be rich. You won't get sick. You won't suffer like this guy. You'll also have a great body. We'll see just now. Uh, and uh, you'll speak really well. All of these things. Uh, that, that's, that's their idea. A very triumphalistic, carnal view of what it means to be a Christian. And Paul says, we don't come in and, and, and fight in worldly ways. We don't try and trick people. It's an open proclamation of the word of God. You look at church history. Christians have never tried to hide the Bible. We don't, we, don't, we don't hide it away so you can't get it. We want it to be printed in every language. We want everyone to know this is what we believe. We're not ashamed of it. We believe it's, it's through light that people are saved. We want the gospel to go out. We want the truth to go out. Paul says that's how we fight. We fight through, he doesn't say what his weapons are. He doesn't expand on it, but as we go through First and Second Corinthians already, clearly the weapons are the preaching of the gospel and the faithful proclamation of God's word. One commentator says this is what the weapons consist of. The proclamation of the gospel through which divine power is released. It is a Disturbing to see the church at large getting so sidetracked 
into politics and ideologies and uh, so many different things as though that's the battle. (laughs) The battle is the gospel. Keep preaching the gospel and faithfully proclaiming God's word. That's the fight. Making disciples. Not overthrowing governments or preserving some sort of culture or something like that. It's the gospel. You never find any of that in Paul's writings or the New Testament writings. Paul could have written a hundred books on issues with the Roman Empire and things he could have moaned about. It's not as though moaning is a modern (laughs) invention. But people get sidetracked all the time. And Paul says, no, this is where our power is to overthrow these things. It's through the proclamation of the gospel, expounding God's word faithfully. And so always keep the main thing the main thing. And notice, where, is, where, where are the problems? It's in our minds. It's in wrong thinking. It's opinions and thoughts and arguments so that we take every thought captive to obey Christ. And so Paul says, this is, what, this is how we fight. Okay? This is how we roll. We preach God's word. Preach the gospel. Proclaim the truth. And the truth is powerful to bring down those strongholds. If you've been a Christian for any period of time, I hope you can testify to that, to say, sure, I used to be so obsessed about this thing, but the Lord, through His Word, has corrected my thinking, changed my priorities. God's Word is powerful to to break down those strongholds. And so that we, we, we come under the sound of God's word, become members of faithful churches so that we can learn to bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And again, notice it's to Christ. Everything is Christ-centered, submission to Christ. And as we've said over and over again, the words of the Lord Jesus in John chapter 13, the Lord Jesus says, the person who receives the one that I send receives me. The one who rejects the one that I send rejects me. If you reject the teachings of the Apostle Paul, you're rejecting Jesus Christ. You cannot come with that nonsense that you like Jesus, but you don't like Paul. (laughs) People who say they like the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, You know, I've heard, you know, People say, you know, Gandhi said, you know, he really liked the Sermon on the Mount. I wonder if he even read it. You know that Jesus says at the end of time, he will judge every single human being. And there will be people who said, we did all these good things in your name, Jesus. And what will he say to them? Depart from me, I don't even know you. Okay. (laughs) So you can, it's nonsense. You've just never read Jesus. Okay. (laughs) Never read the Gospels if you think, you know, Jesus is all loving, but Paul's this nasty guy. You don't understand Paul because Paul, as we've seen, is full of incredible love, the love of Christ for this church that has abused him and slandered him, turned against him, betrayed him. He continues to love them. And so we must have our, our thinking brought into captivity to obey Christ, disciple your thoughts. 
One author identifies several kinds of power that leaders can exert. Number one, exploitative power, which uses physical force or the threat of violence and leaves the other with no choice but to comply. So this is different forms of leadership. So first is exploitative threats and violence to get people to do what you want. Number two, manipulative power uses the covert cunning of the con man. Number three, competitive power employs an I win, you lose strategy. Only one can win and it results in shrinkage of community. And then lastly, integrative power works with the other person to enable them to grow both mentally and spiritually. As Paul portrays matters in these chapters, we get the picture that his rivals, these false apostles, have been exploitative, manipulative, and competitive in their use of power. He insinuates that they enslave, devour, seek to gain control, put on airs, and strike the Corinthians in the face. And here's the startling thing. Some Corinthians readily submitted to their domination, mistaking this brazen behavior for the apostolic ideal. They then interpreted Paul's gentle restraint as weakness. So one of the key things you need to take away from this section and from the whole section is, who do you trust? I mentioned that right as we started this series. Who are you going to listen to? There are so many voices out there, so many podcasts, so many sermons that you can get access to, so many books, and it's a wonderful thing. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. Don't go away from here thinking, this is legalism. You're not allowed to listen to anyone else that we're some sort of cult. <laughs> uh, uh, that's not the case at all. Uh, praise God for good, good material that goes out all over the world, and it's, it's helpful. But who are you going to trust? You don't know those people. That's why over and over again we're just seeing these, these names, people that you'd listen to their sermons and suddenly their lives are exposed as full of sin, heretics, abusive manipulators. And so Paul is saying to the Corinthians, who are you going to listen to? See, how, see their leadership style. It's exploitative, manipulative. Competitive. Isn't it interesting that probably in the last hundred years, that's, that's the model in business. Those of you who have been in, in you know, industry and in the, in, in the business world will know that. Certain businesses as well. I, 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 was, I worked in, in the mining field and earth moving equipment, and so it's rough. Exploitative leadership is the way people get things done. Swearing and cursing and shouting, even violence at times, that's how you get it done. And people get it done, okay? Because it's not nice to be shouted at. <laughs> Manipulative, those of you in corporate world, you'll know a little office politics. And <laughs> I hear some of the stories. What about the competitive one, playing people off against one another? All the time. And we get so used to it that we, not, we don't even see it when it's in the church. 
And here's the, the terrible thing that we see over and over again is that people submit to it and think it's okay and get used to it and don't see the alarm bells even when they're in church. The Corinthians were blind to it. They thought that's what it means to be an apostle. You know, an apostle doesn't take nonsense. Apostle shouts at everyone and tells them what to do. And they said, but Paul is so weak, you know. He's gentle and kind and nice. He's just a normal person. <laughs> he can't be a big shot. These guys, they're amazing. Be careful. Who are you listening to? Are you being seduced? Are you being manipulated? Are you, are you succumbing? Are you weak-minded? Not thinking properly. Paul, by contrast, uses integrative power. Chapter 1, verse 24. As I said to you, one of my theme verses for ministry, Paul says, we work with you for your joy. That's leadership. To work with one another for joy. Paul asserts his authority for building up the Christian community, not himself And his manner becomes a model for how to exercise authority in the church. Another commentator says this, when we continue to position ourselves to gain power over others, rather than to empower them as agents of God's grace, our congregations and families will simply fail to bear witness to God in our world. That's what it means to be a leader. It's that you... You're working together with your family, working together with the congregation for their joy so that we can together grow in in grace and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's the weapons that we use. The gospel, the good news, the truth of God's word. We keep the main thing the main thing. The next accusation, look at verse 7. Paul says, look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ's, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ, so also are we. For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. And so what's the accusation here? Well, they were really saying that they are Christ's. Christ has sent them and made them apostles. Paul is not Christ's. Paul hasn't been ordained by Christ as an apostle. We are. Uh, We've had dreams and visions. We have these letters of recommendation. Remember that? We are Christ's. Uh, Some commentators surmise that it might even be that they they were from Israel and had actually seen Christ. Remember, Paul was not from Israel. He was sort of Tarsus, uh, although he he went to Jerusalem, but he was not from there. So they might have been saying, look, we are Christ. We saw him. We're from Israel, not like this guy. Whatever, we don't know exactly, but we do know that's the accusation. They're saying, he's not ordained by Christ, we are ordained by Christ. And uh, Paul boasts about his authority as an apostle. And so that's the accusation. They're saying, Paul isn't really an apostle, and he, you know, he keeps boasting about this authority, but he's not really an apostle. 
Well, Paul uses sarcasm in his answer. Look at what he says. If anyone is confident that he is Christ, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ, so also are we. Often we read Paul's letters without an understanding of the times that he uses sarcasm. Okay? And he uses it quite a lot. Um, with the, the Corinthians. Uh, and it was a way of communicating at that time. Okay? It was the way that um, you would overthrow an argument. You would use sarcasm. Okay? It was accepted. It was the way the philosophers spoke as well. Uh, so there is a place for sarcasm, but just be careful. You don't live in the Greco-Roman time. Okay? So don't think, great, I can go put all those sarcastic memes up <laughs> uh, and just smash all my enemies. Uh, it doesn't go down so well in our age um, because people don't, don't always get it. Uh, so just to say, there is a place for sarcasm, but be very careful. Okay? Uh, use it with your close friends, primarily, okay? who, who understand it and get it. Um, just because Paul used it doesn't mean we can use it, because remember, it's 2,000 years ago, different context. Paul was speaking the way people spoke. That's how things were handled. Go and read Calvin and Luther and how those guys wrote. Okay. It was okay in that time. Try it today. You will lose your job very quickly. Okay. <laughs> so all that, all that to say simply, be wise. Remember, Paul's thing is to win people. He's not trying to offend people unnecessarily. He's trying to win people. Use the context in which you live. Use the way language is used in the way that we use it to try and win people. Uh, don't say, well, I'm just like Paul. I use sarcasm all the time. Uh, you're just being a bonehead, okay? Uh, you're just offending people unnecessarily. Uh, so don't do that. Uh, so Paul says here, when he says that, he's not saying, look, I'm, just as I'm an apostle, you guys are also apostles. He's using sarcasm. He's saying, yeah, you guys are also apostles. Next chapter, he says, you're false apostles, okay? Yeah, 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 you guys are also apostles. Yeah, that's great, okay? Uh, that's the idea with, with Paul's sarcasm regarding them. Uh, verse 11, uh, sorry, verse 13 of chapter 11, he says, Such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. Now, how does Paul defend this accusation that he's not really an apostle? Well, he's been doing it all the way through. And so, verse 7, he says, Look at what is before your eyes. Just, just look. Okay. Who's the apostle here? Who's the one that loves you? All the way through he's been arguing. Just think clearly. Look at what is before your eyes. Look at the evidence. He's the one who planted the church. He's the one who has loved them. He's the one who didn't even take a salary from them and put other churches under pressure. He's the one who's continued to strive with them and love them, even though they've treated him so badly. Look at the evidence. And then he says, the authority which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you. So he says, the Lord gave me this authority. Remember when the Lord called him? Paul was on the Damascus road. The Lord confronted him and appointed him, made him an apostle to the Gentiles to go and proclaim the gospel. And said, Paul, you're going to suffer a lot of things. But you're going to speak before kings and noble people and all of these things. But he appointed him. 
He says, the Lord gave me this authority. Paul isn't claiming some authority of his own. The Lord gave him this authority. And why did the Lord give him authority? For building up and not for destroying. Again, you see Paul's heart over and over again. He wants to build up the church. The Lord gave him that authority. And so he says, I will not be ashamed. Paul says, I'm going to continue to say, I'm an apostle. The Lord gave me this authority. And I'm not ashamed of that. And I'm going to keep using it to build people up, to plant churches. How do you use the authority God has given you in whatever sphere? given all of us spheres of authority, family, home, work, church, wherever it is, whatever sphere, to use it for building people up. Is that your goal or is it just to break down? You see, the false apostles were just breaking people down. The next accusation, verse 10, for they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak. And his speech of no account. Yeah, he's a good writer, but he's pretty ugly and he's a pathetic preacher. Okay. That's what they're saying. Yeah, look, we have to admit, his letters are forceful. And you can't deny that. Uh, when you read Paul's letters, they are. They're strong. They're bold. But you know, when he comes, he's, his bodily presence is weak. Uh, there's no charisma, natural dynamism. You know, he's not the guy that walks into the room and everyone is like a hush that descends. You know, some people, God has gifted that sort of presence. Uh, they, they walk into a room and people take notice. Paul didn't have that. Okay. His bodily presence is weak. Uh, we do have a description that seems to be from the... the that's, from the period of Paul, from a man called Onesiphorus. He says this, uh, Paul was a man of middling size, so he wasn't tall, and his hair was scanty, he was going bald. Okay? So short and bald. Okay, there we <laughs> and his legs were a little crooked, and his knees were far apart. He had large eyes, and his eyebrows met. Okay? And his nose was somewhat long. So, he wasn't going to make it to the cover of GQ magazine, uh, or Christianity Today even. <laughs> uh, he didn't have a body that the, the Greeks and the Romans prized. You know all those statues in Greece and, and Italy of naked men with six-packs? That was the ideal. In fact, the Olympics were done naked, okay? Uh, because this obsession with the human form. Paul didn't have it. Who is this guy? How can he be the representative of Jesus Christ, of the triune God, when he looks like that? Okay. Again, who are you? Who are you chasing? Is it one of these celebrity pastors who wears shirts three sizes too small? It becomes quite pathetic, doesn't it? Because you see them, they're like 60 now, and they're still trying to keep that they're in a boy band, you know? 
trying to hold on to that. Is that what influences you? They're trendy, they're cool, I'm going to listen to this guy. Again, they're dropping like flies, aren't they? They've been exposed. The obsession with the outward. doesn't mean you can you know, just let yourself go. That's not what <laughs> the Bible teaches. Uh, we must look after ourselves, be healthy, but not idolatrous about these things. And then the next thing, his speech was of no account. Worthless is the idea. Pathetic, some translations have. Of no importance. Or no import, no weight. So basically, he's not a, he wasn't a, a great preacher. It is interesting that that comes across. Remember in 1 Corinthians, the whole church was divided over their favorite preacher. Some said, no, Peter. Peter's our favorite preacher. You can imagine Peter being quite fiery. So we like Peter. Uh, others said Apollos. We know that Apollos was a very eloquent man. We like Apollos. He's very eloquent. Some said they liked Paul, but it wasn't a majority. It wasn't that everyone said, no, Paul is a great preacher. We really like that guy. We know of at least one person who fell asleep when Paul was preaching, okay, in the book of Acts, uh, and he died. So that's a warning. Don't fall asleep. Because if you do, if you fall off the top there, uh, I'm not Paul. I can't raise you back, okay, so... But isn't that interesting? No doubt he, he was a preacher. It wasn't as though he, he couldn't teach and, and God just used him anyway. That's not the way it works. Uh, if God calls you to be a preacher, you should be able to preach. Okay? He was certainly a preacher, but he wasn't the greatest preacher. He wasn't, he wasn't on the, the conference circuit. He wasn't the, the, the guy that everyone invited to come and preach. Again, who are you? it's the content. Or are you just swayed by the rhetoric? A lot of people, I hear their reputation, and I listen to them, and I sift through the, the, the eloquence and the rhetorical ability and the presence to what are they actually saying. Yeah, okay, that's, that's fine, but it's not mind-blowing. See, are you, or are you influenced by the, your senses primarily? How does Paul defend himself? Look at verse 11. Let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. So remember they said, you know, his, weight, his letters are you know, weighty and strong, but when he's around, he's not a big deal. Paul is saying, look, you need to understand, I will do what I say if I have to. Just because Paul was gentle and meek and lowly, and that was the tenor of his life, exactly like the Lord Jesus Christ, there are times when they would bear the sword, when they would come in and sort things out. There are times when the Lord Jesus says, get out of my temple, chases people out. Isn't that right? Paul is saying, I will come and do this. I don't want to have to come with boldness. I don't want to have to come and excommunicate people. I don't want to do these things. But if, there's, if rebellion and disobedience continues then, then I will do it. And so Paul wasn't a hypocrite. He was patient, slow to anger, like the, like the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Verse 12, not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves. Again, notice the sarcasm. I think you can get it in the tone. You know, not that we would dare to you know, compare ourselves with these guys. Uh, keep coming, and you'll see Paul, Paul do it in a very sarcastic way later on in the, in the letter. Uh, but then he says, but they need to know this. When they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. You see, if you make yourself the standard, you're always going to look fine, isn't that right? And it's so easy for us to do this, just in any sphere. You know, I like this music. If you really, you know, if you were sophisticated, you would like the same music that I like. Uh, I'm the standard, or this food, or this coffee, or this, <laughs> this country, whatever it is. Uh, you see, we do that all the time. This football club, if you support Liverpool, but that one might be true, actually. I think that one. <laughs> uh, but you see, when you come to morality, it's what the Pharisees were doing. They just compared themselves amongst themselves. That's why they hated Jesus so much, because when Jesus came on the scene, he exposed them as hypocrites. Before he came along, they looked so good, and they just worked amongst themselves. You see these false teachers, they just compare themselves amongst themselves. Yeah, we all look good. We've got letters of recommendation. We've got good CV, good background. We're proper Jews. We've got it together. We don't suffer. So we are the standard. You're just comparing amongst yourself. Paul says, you're without understanding. So be careful of that yourself. Well, what does Paul want? Verse 9, I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters. So they say Paul's letters are weighty and powerful. But you know, we've seen already, he said, even when he wrote that that severe letter, he, he grieved, he repented over writing it. Again, we just see the gentleness of Paul. His, his aim is not to frighten people and to intimidate people. Gentleness all the time. And then the last accusation, verse 14, for we are not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you. So see what they're saying. Saying, you know, this Paul guy, he, he overextends himself. He just wants to... To go everywhere. Uh, He's he's got this idea of of planting all these churches and going everywhere. He overextends himself. So notice the contradiction. The first thing they say, you know, he's too humble and timid. You know, he doesn't have any fire in him. Now he wants to go everywhere. So you see always contradictions. How does Paul defend himself? Verse 13, we will not boast beyond limits. We will boast only with regard to the area of influence God assigned to us to reach even to you. So Paul says, we're not like you guys. You're not like the false apostles who boasted in things they hadn't achieved. Paul says, we won't boast beyond limits. We will boast only with regard to the area of influence God has assigned to us. Paul says, I'm only going to boast in what the Lord has done through me. 
We've spoken about boasting already in this series. Not all boasting is sinful. If you're going to boast, it must be legitimate, something that you have done, but your boasting is, I thank the Lord that he has used me in this way or done this through me or given me the ability to do this. That's why it's wonderful when we see people in sports uh, and it really stands out when someone says, I want to thank the Lord for this. They're acknowledging that ability. They didn't design their DNA in their mother's womb, their genetics. They didn't grow up with the right settings where they were able to train and have the right coaches and all of those things. I'm not denying the hard work. That's what they can boast in. But they also realize there are many things beyond their control. And they acknowledge it's all from, from God. They give glory to God. I want to thank the Lord for, for this. Paul says we don't boast beyond our limits. Uh, this probably also has something to do with Paul is called an apostle to the Gentiles. Remember that? And Peter is an apostle to the Jews. So Paul's uh, missionary mandate is to go to Gentile lands. And plant churches. And he planted this church. It was God's grace that he reached even to the Corinthian church. So he's, again, you see these false apostles are coming in and claiming the church for themselves. They did nothing. Paul planted that church. He's their spiritual father. He says that, For we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. See, again, what message did he bring? you know, Paul's denomination, Paul's ideologies, no, the gospel of Christ. We do not boast beyond limit in the labors of others. And this is his desire. But our hope is that as your faith increases, so his hope is as the Corinthians get it, as they realize they've been duped, as they get rid of these false teachers, as they repent of this, and really get behind Paul as their spiritual father and a true apostle, as their faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged. So that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you. So Paul says, Paul understands that if the Corinthian church starts repenting and submitting to Paul's apostolic ministry and believing the gospel and living it out and obeying the teachings of, of Scripture, that will be a base for Paul to go out and preach the gospel in lands beyond you. We know that he wanted to go to Spain, and some say he actually got to Spain, but uh, that's, that's his, his heart. Plant more and more churches to reach to all these places so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you without boasting of work already done in another's, an, another's area of influence. And so over and over again, we just see in Paul this heart to see more and more people saved. For the gospel to go out, for more churches to be planted, for more people to be saved. As he says earlier in Second Corinthians, that more people would give thanks to God. See, Paul's heart was broken when he just saw people who weren't worshipping God. Not just because of their own sadness, but because God should be praised and glorified. 
Is that your heart? Is your heart that more and more people will be saved? That we'll have people sitting on the streets out there? Well, my heart isn't that they're sitting on the streets. It was that we get a bigger building, okay? That uh, we can accommodate all of them. But isn't that, that must be your heart. Eight million people in Greater Johannesburg. Eight million people that will live forever and ever and ever and ever. Will never die. Never dying souls. No, I like a church with 50 people because, you know, it's just nice. I don't like this talk of church plants and all of this and money that we need to, to raise up more people for ministry and that. You don't have the heart of Paul. You don't have the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ to make disciples of all nations. To see people converted. And it's a, it's a, I'm not saying it's always the case, but often the case is people who complain a lot, they don't have a missionary heart. They don't actually care about more people being saved. Not always, as I said, and I'm not saying that, that you shouldn't be bringing legitimate complaints, but often people who are divisive, as we see here, they didn't care, these false apostles. It was about them. And so in conclusion, what should a faithful Christian leader look, look like? Humble and gentle, like the Lord Jesus Christ. Not manipulative or abusive like the Lord Jesus Christ. Uses the gospel and the truth of the scriptures to overthrow wrong thinking. Like the Lord Jesus, isn't that right? Go and read the gospels. How does Jesus respond to wrong thinking and temptations and accusations? He quotes the scriptures. We need leaders who are sent by God. What does that mean? Well, it is very clear that local churches should ordain leaders. And they should be sent out by the churches. We see that in the book of Acts, which is the next book that we're going to be, be looking at. So if you're in a church where it's just some guy who felt like starting his own church... Probably better not to be there. Okay? There is a structure. You need to be sent. You can't just wake up one day and say, I'm going to start my own denomination. Normally those people are people who just didn't get a platform in a church because they had a wrong attitude. And then they're like, well, I think everyone should hear me. I'm just going to start my own thing. They're not sent by God. God works in certain ways to be sent The Lord Jesus Christ was sent by the Father. Isn't that right? He says that. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you, he says to the apostles. So properly ordained, there's a structure. There's an order. And then lastly, faithful leaders want as many people to be saved as possible. Like the Lord Jesus Christ. What did he say? They wanted him to stay and do miracles. And he says, no, I have to go and preach the gospel in other places. Okay. That was his mission. He went from town to town preaching the gospel. 
Paul does the same thing. Faithful churches that are springboards to send out missionaries. Paul's heart was unreached people groups. That's what a missionary does, to reach unreached people groups. Pray that the Lord would raise up missionaries, church planters, and grow our church to see more and more people converted. Amen. Let's, let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the Apostle Paul. We just see how he was slandered and falsely accused, and yet his response is so incredible. We thank you for his humility and gentleness. Thank you for the way he imitated you, Lord Jesus. We pray for for ourselves here at Heritage, that you would preserve us, that uh, as a leadership and future leaders, that we would model uh, what we see in Scripture, not be influenced by uh, the management books of the world or the practices of the world or the fleshly carnal thinking of getting things done, but through the wisdom of your, your word. Uh, we pray for Christians across our land, so many of them are truly saved but have been manipulated and deceived and are in abusive churches under abusive leaders, manipulative leaders who don't faithfully proclaim your word. Uh, We pray that they would get rid of those leaders and uh, you would raise up faithful leaders uh, or if necessary that they would leave those so-called churches as you call the Corinthians, to to get rid of these false teachers. And so we pray that you would do this, that you'd have mercy upon our land, raise up many faithful, faithful pastors who love their congregations, who are meek and gentle, who don't dilute your word and have a heart, a passion to see millions converted, who are grieved when they see people not giving you praise and glory because you deserve it, Lord. You are King of kings and Lord of lords. You are the true servant king, the shepherd king who laid down your life. And so we ask that you would do this for your name's sake. Amen.